Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? What is up? We are two games into the NBA Finals. 1-1 series going back to Boston. We will have a lot to talk about, about those first two games, because we didn't pod in between games one and two, and we will get to all that very soon. But before we do, there has been some news around the association and some fairly big, maybe not shocking because the reports had been out there for a while, but still very big news in the Utah Jazz, who have been one of the best team, well, at the very least, one of the best regular season teams and a consistent playoff mainstay over the you know last little while in the NBA, losing their head coach, not because they mutually agreed to part ways, not because they decided his time had come to an end. In fact, Danny Ainge, who's now ascended the hierarchy in Utah in their front office, has said that they you know practically begged him to stay, like they really wanted him to stay, and Quinn Snyder decided on his own that it was time for him to go. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that ownership and management spent several weeks trying to convince Snyder to return, even offering a contract extension on top of the two years he already had on his contract, but that Snyder just felt it it was time to walk away. And obviously he's walking away without anything else lined up. Might just take the year off. We'll see what happens. Uh, Woj also reported that same night that Donovan Mitchell Uh, is described as, quote-unquote, unsettled, unnerved, and wondering what this means for the franchise's future. Wolfond, all that out there now, before we get to finals talk, I already see you laughing. I, You know, I I feel bad even bringing all this up because I I was going to say, you know, the Jazz have been dead to you since before they were even eliminated this season, and they kind of were to me too. They're now dead to Quinn Snyder as well. So, yeah, what what are your thoughts on all of this? And then I'll provide mine. Well, I did say that they were only dead to me until the offseason, which I acknowledge was going to be an interesting time to talk about them. And I guess it's not officially the offseason yet, although it is for them, obviously. And we've got the ball rolling here with a pretty seismic move. I think... I totally get it from Quinn Snyder's perspective. Like even just, you know, take the the situation, the circumstances out of it. Like we have a lot of firsthand anecdotal evidence about coaches just feeling a lot of burnout, feeling like they need to take time off coaches who struggle and suffer from lack of sleep and migraine headaches and various other physical and mental health ailments that come with the stresses of the job. So even just from that perspective, I understand it. But I also think that this could prove to be a really good career move for Quinn Snyder because generally speaking, his approval rating around the NBA is extremely high. You know, there have definitely been times in the last few postseasons where I feel like criticism of him has probably been warranted in terms of his lack of adjustments, like his inability to craft a more versatile defensive scheme, I suppose. Like, I don't think he's exempt from that, but I don't feel like he's caught a whole bunch of flack for their playoff flameouts compared to the way that 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 team's stars and roster in general has taken heat. So I feel like he's in a good place in terms of his reputation and deservedly so. I mean, I think he is a wonderful coach who has consistently designed really efficient, really interesting offensive systems. And I think from his perspective, he had to have felt like he had taken this thing with Utah as far as it could go. You know, he'd burned through his bag of tricks. I don't think the team is like on an upward trajectory. It does feel like they're coming to an end of something more so than, you know, the beginning of something or even the crescendo of something. Like I think last year was the crescendo of this whole Snyder, Gobert, 
Donovan Mitchell era. Them, and, them not winning that's them not breaking through and getting to at least the conference finals when once Kawhi got hurt in that series. You're right. Like that year was the crescendo. It, it's that, that's the peak of this story. Yeah. You would and now you look at it and it's like, okay, uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell's still young mm-hmm. and getting better. Gobert, I think, has more or less plateaued, but is still playing at a really high level. But apart from that, the the role players are either plateauing or declining. The roster is getting older. Mike Conley is in a precarious place physically, I feel like. And I just feel for him to sort of take a step back now, maybe take a year off and get a chance to probably have his pick of whichever available jobs are out there next year could prove to be, I think, a really successful pivot for him and a way to start fresh with you know, a clean slate, but more than that, just an opportunity to do something new with a new personnel group where it just felt like his opportunities for growth as a coach and just in terms of like the areas that he could actually take the franchise, you know, like the, the Jazz's upward mobility, I think, has really diminished. And I feel like he has probably recognized that. And especially seeing the writing on the wall with like the Gobert Mitchell relationship and the possibility and maybe even the probability that one of those guys is going to get moved this offseason I feel like it became clear to him at some point that there was nowhere for this thing to go but down and as far as you know just wanting to take a year off I feel like we have seen and heard a lot of coaches in the past say that that's something they need because this is an insanely stressful job so um, you know kudos to Quinn Snyder I think he did a, a magnificent job during his what was it like his uh, eight years tenure then yeah, he was the fourth there. fourth longest tenured coach in the league really really strong tenure in Utah I know they never got past the second round but I think really apart from last year and even last year I think it's not like coming into the season anyone expected them to be the juggernaut that they turned into right it's not like you know zooming out and looking at what like what were they supposed to do coming into the season I don't think anyone would have said losing in the second round was underwhelming or was like not living up to their expectations. I think for the most part, they either met or exceeded expectations virtually every season. You know, maybe this past season being the lone exception to that. So I I think he deserves a ton of credit. uh, And I'm really excited to see where he lands and what he does next, because we've gotten so used to him installing his system with that Utah team and I'm curious to see, like, if he were to go to a team with maybe more versatile defensive personnel or, you know, a different kind of offensive engine, how different it might look. Because he doesn't strike me as a, as a one-note coach. Like, I feel like he could do a lot of different things. We just maybe need to see him in a different environment before we see those things. Perfect pun, too, uh, from the Jazz. The one-note coach. I like that. Um, no, definitely not a one-note coach. In fact, uh, you know, he's known for having a very, like, intricate uh, and dynamic offensive system. And mm-hmm. usually a coach like that has such an intricate system wouldn't be a one note coach, you know, like they should have, I'm sure he's got ideas in his head about how things would be different or might be different depending on the roster construction and all that. I agree with you. This is perfect timing and it's rare, perfect timing for a coach. I think it's very rare that things line up for a coach where one, they, they can be the ones to step away. Like they can walk away on their own terms from a good team but with confidence that they're walking away from a situation that will not get better. You know, like all those things usually don't add up because it's like usually, you know, even if a coach maybe is feeling burnt out, but he's he's on this like, peren- he's coaching this perennial playoff team and he's still welcome back and they're willing to give him more guaranteed money over longer years. It's usually hard to walk away. Plus, you know, I'm sure it's in the back of your head. Like, okay, do I want to walk away from, you know, what's ultimately a good thing and maybe miss a chance. I think this Utah situation is the very rare situation where like the team is good, but they're very clearly not good enough to actually win. So he can comfortably walk away without, I don't really think having regret a year from now about like the one that got away. Mm -hmm. Also unique situation because they still want him back. Like it's just everything lined up. As you said, he kind of skirted the heat a little bit. You know, yes, people called him out here and there. I think he did catch some heat last year. Uh, in after that Clippers series, and you know, I think the team rightfully so as a whole caught heat after that for not being able to beat the Kawhi-less Clippers after having the best record in the league. But all in all, I think he's managed to walk away from this with his his not just resume but his reputation very much intact to the point where he could take a year off and be you know maybe the best 
coach on the market next year or whenever if an opening comes up midseason. So totally understand from his point. As next far as your 76ers about, head coach, Quinn Snyder. Hey, I mean. Putting yeah. that out there in the, into the ether. Yeah, especially if D'Antoni's off the board with the Charlotte job, which he seems to be not necessarily the favorite for. I think it uh, sounds like it's him and Kenny Atkinson. But right, um, I, and I actually think D'Antoni would be a lot of fun in Charlotte with Lamelo in that roster. But anyway, yeah, if he's off the board, especially in, in the Maury connection, the Harden connection's gone, then I, Snyder should definitely be installed as the betting favorite right now to get that job. But even to your point about you know coaches having talking about being burnt out and stuff, it's funny because uh, the the last story behind. Uh, episode we did in that series for our YouTube channel. I actually did it on the like 80s and 90s jazz, like the Stockton and Malone jazz and, and kind of being, you know, arguably the best team to never win one and, and models of consistency or models of disappointment and all this. Anyway, I thought about this while when this Snyder thing came up because that episode just came out Saturday and in 1980, in the middle of the 1988-89 season, their former head coach and general manager, Frank Layden, stepped down in the middle of a season with the Jazz actually very much on like an upward trajectory with two young stars in Stockton alone in the middle of what was already looking like a promising season. And he stepped down uh, as coach, stayed on as an executive. And then that's when Jerry Sloan, who was his lead assistant, stepped into the head coaching role and obviously held on to it for 20 years. But the quote Frank Layden had at the time in 1988 when he stepped down was, sometimes in the NBA, you feel like a dog. You age seven years in one. The pressure is intense and it's time to have my time. And so, yeah, I think you kind of um, hit it on the head when you said it's very understandable if he's also just burnt out, you know, if Quinn Snyder's just burnt out because he wouldn't be the first jazz coach and definitely wouldn't be the first NBA coach to feel like that. My last thought on the matter is the Donovan Mitchell stuff with Woj reporting, you know, he's unnerved and this and that. Like, yeah, I just wanted to say, and the reason I was laughing when, when you were reading off that list of uh, emotions or adjectives in describing that Woj story, I was just imagining Donovan Mitchell's agents leaking this story to Woj and in like the Stephen A. Smith voice saying, we are unnerved, (laughs) unimpressed, unenthused, undermined, yeah, good. No, I it trust me. I I laughed the same way reading it the first time because all due respect to Donovan Mitchell, I'm going to call a pound the rock fraudulent here. Um oh, not not wow, on Donovan wow, Mitchell wow, as a whole. Wow. No, no, not on not on Spider as a whole. On this story on these on the like how he's feeling about the Jazz. And the reason I say that is because look, man, I mentioned off the top that even though it's a big story, it's not necessarily surprising, definitely not shocking, given that this reporting has been out there for a while, that Quinn Snyder is like taking his time to consider whether he even wants to do this in Utah anymore. I would find it very hard to believe that we are seeing all those reports over the last few weeks, and yet one of the two pillars of the franchise didn't see any of the reporting, was completely in the dark to the point where like, he didn't see this coming at all. So that's the one thing. I find it hard to believe you can be that shell-shocked when there's been smoke for a few weeks now. You know, that then when the fire starts, you're all of a sudden like, oh my God, what is happening? Like, come on. Um, so that's one. Two, again, not that every report is correct. I know a lot of things are planted and this and that. But if we are to believe the reports from very credible NBA reporters, there's been plenty of talk about Donovan Mitchell's desire to even be in Salt Lake City anymore, the relationship with Gobert, yada, yada, yada. My point being that, and I listen, I will concede I have been wrong about this in the past with Dame, with Lillard in Portland, where he'll say some things and I'll be like, I don't buy that. I think he's just kind of like planting things so that when he finally does ask out, it seems like he's got a reason to do it. I concede I've been wrong. with Like I've said that about Dame for three years now and he's still there and hasn't officially. So I'll take the L on that. But I think I'm going to say, I think Donovan Mitchell's doing that here where it's like, there's already been the reports. You might want out seeks a bigger market. As you mentioned, the crescendo was very much last year. It does seem like it's going downhill. This is not a thing on the rise. I could see this as him perhaps using this to help him angle his way out where it's like, well, no, those, you know, those reports weren't true about me wanting out, but now that's Quinn's like Coach Snyder's left. Now I'm unnerved and I'm unsettled and I'm unsure about the future of the franchise. So now I might want out. And so that's the only thing I'm calling fraud alert on where I don't think he's that caught off guard or shell-shocked or unnerved by any of this. I think he's actually probably seeing this as like, this might be my opportunity to wiggle my way out of here and say, I don't like the way this, like, I don't like the direction this is going right now. You know, quit Coach Snyder just left. So anyway, that that's my thoughts on all that. 
Yeah, I actually very much agree with that. I think it's a pretty thinly veiled attempt at finding some cover and finding a rationale for putting those sentiments out there in the world without it seeming like he was sort of proactively pushing his way out. Or even that, you know, potentially he caused this in a way with his antsiness and his inability to coalesce on or off the court with Rudy Gobert. I mean, by all accounts, his relationship with Quinn Snyder was very strong. But I also, you know, to go back to what I was saying about seeing the writing on the wall, I don't think it's out of the question that the fraught interpersonal dynamics going on within the Jazz organization played a part in him making the decision that it was time for him to step away. So it's, I agree it's almost like I think it's, it's a, it's a, pretty flimsy cover story him saying oh well now maybe i'm reconsidering things when i feel like we have it on pretty good authority that he's been considering things for a while yeah it's almost like donovan mitchell's antsiness unnerved quinn snyder it's almost like quinn snyder was unnerved and unsure about the direction of the franchise mostly due to donovan mitchell and that's why he left as opposed to it being the other way around yeah Um, yeah, I mean, and whether it was because of what Donovan Mitchell was saying or doing behind the scenes or because he was a fucking traffic cone in the playoffs and didn't seem willing at all to put in the requisite effort to be anything more than that at that end of the floor, uh, I think it's it's fair to surmise that that may have played a part in things. So, um, absolutely. again, the Jazz were dead to me. During the postseason when I, I just thought they they had an opportunity to take control of that series against Dallas with Luka Doncic out of action. They didn't do it. They disappointed me. I had kind of been an apologist for them all season. And it's the offseason now for them. I'm ready to talk about this team again, man. All kinds of all kinds of interesting things are going to happen, and they they might be like at the very top of the list of most interesting offseason teams. Like that's hundred percent to me, they are the most fascinating offseason team. So uh, let's go. They're they're back alive, man. We're we're gonna have a all jazz all the time podcast yeah. this offseason. I can't wait. <laughs> They've been resurrected. They're alive in your mind for all of the wrong reasons, and I love that. All right, <laughs> let's talk about two teams who are still alive. For basketball reasons, because they're the two yes. best basketball teams on the planet this season. That is the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics. Split the first two games in the Bay Area. Boston steals game one, fueled by Al Horford and Derek White and a little bit of Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown as well. Just what they win that fourth quarter, 40-16 to 16 or something like that? Yep. 42-16. Come out strong to start game two, and then it was the Warriors avalanche that kind of took over as First half wound down, and then, you know, typical third quarter Warriors just absolutely destroy the Celtics. It was a 29-point lead at one point in the third quarter. That became a blowout. And now here the series stands. Going back to Boston, uh, a best of five now where the Celtics technically have home court. You picked a seven-game series. I picked a six-gamer. So I think the fact these teams split the first two, I don't think either one of us is shocked. I know I'm not. Maybe the way the Celtics won game one was stunning, but Mm. the fact that they got a split in San Francisco does not surprise me at all. So uh, let's talk about it and spend the rest of this episode talking about it. Is there any like overarching thing from the first two games that is on your mind that you want to talk about? Is there anything about the maybe the way the Warriors changed their game plan in game two or something the Celtics did differently? Is anything specifically that you want to talk about? Um, my feeling after the first game, and it carried over a little bit to game two, but it also changed in certain ways, which we can get into. But I think in the first game, I was, I, I I guess I was surprised that the Warriors' offense looked a lot like how I had expected Boston's offense to look, and Boston's offense looked a little bit more like how I'd expected Golden State's offense to look, and I thought that was really interesting, and and it obviously spoke to how those two teams had chosen to defend each other, and I'll say like the one thing you know for Golden State's offense, the thing that carried over. And if anything, just got amplified in game two was they're not doing a whole lot of the kind of beautiful game offensive stuff that everybody likes to laud them for. And like, you know, deservedly so like it, it, it's effective. It's fun to watch. But like, I think they realized that Boston was pretty well equipped to defend a lot of that stuff 
you know, the off ball stuff that they can switch and like the split cuts that Boston had well scouted, like all of that has sort of fallen by the wayside in favor of just a whole lot of high pick and roll. And that's what I thought was interesting, you know, about both of these games, but especially game two, because that was like the Warriors just started spamming that. And actually that's the thing that the Celtics haven't really had an answer for yet. And, you know, we saw obviously early on in game one, they're just playing like a straight up deep drop against Steph Curry, which is like, what, what is happening here? And then, you know, like, so they, they go to the first quarter break and they show on the ESPN broadcast, the mic'd up segment of Marcus Smart talking to an unseen teammate, which I just assumed was Robert Williams, the third, where Smart was like, we're not playing Miami anymore. We can't defend the pick and rolls this way. You need to be up especially when they're setting the screen near half court as the Warriors were doing for Steph. And then you got to drop back once we're able to chase over top and we can force him off of the three-point line. Like we can't be letting him walk into these pull-up threes. So for the rest of game one, pretty much as soon as they played that clip, you started to see the shift in how the Celtics were defending. And I think for the most part, like they continued to avoid switching those actions. They would switch it with Horford from time to time. And that hasn't gone particularly well. Where they had the most success defending that high ball screen action in game one was doing like the up to touch thing where the big is high and then is retreating. And they did a really, really good job in the second half of game one of executing that. And in game two, it sort of fell by the wayside again, it felt like. And Steph was just sort of burning them with... The, that same kind of high pick and roll action going after their bigs. And I guess I'm curious to see moving forward, like what the Celtics coverage looks like, how it changes, if it changes, if they, you know, just sort of stick to that scheme, but just try to execute it as well as they did in the second half of game one versus, Hey, are we switching more? Are we blitzing? Like the Celtics don't blitz. Like they've barely blitzed Steph through these first two games. It's just not really something that they like to do. So, you know, it's like if, if Kavon Looney is the guy setting the screen, I know his short roll passing has actually been pretty good this postseason, but I wouldn't mind seeing them like daring him to make a play in the four on three, you know, 100%. especially with if you got Horford and Rob Williams out on the floor at the same time. And like one of those guys is behind the play to kind of clean things up. I don't know, man, like from time to time, I get they don't want to do it very often because the Warriors are very practiced at executing those four on threes. But like maybe mix more of that in to get the ball out of Steph's hands and not just give him some of the pull ups or the step back looks that they're giving him now. Um, that That's one thing. And then like, you know, the other way in game one, like the Warriors threw a, a, an awful lot of attention Jason Tatum's way. And they were playing a lot of his pick and rolls three on two. Like they were sending two to the ball against him a lot. And not just when he was going after Steph or Poole. Like they were doing the hedge and recover thing with those guys a little bit. But even when he was, you know, going after Kevon Looney, like running more basic pick and roll with the bigs, they were putting two on the ball. And he obviously had a really rough shooting game in game one, went three for 17, but he also had 13 assists and was beating the pre-rotations with skip passes and like, getting Boston's offense into this sort of swing, swing sequence of like quick ball movement and quick decision-making that was like, you know, it wasn't Warriors-esque in terms of like the player movement, but in terms of the ball movement, I felt like it was. And, you know, the craziest stat to me from that game one was the Celtics got 36 catch and shoot three point attempts in that game. Three off the dribble threes. Like that is an insane ratio And um, it normalized a little bit in game two because the Warriors sort of just started switching everything. Whether it was Steph, whether it was Poole, whether it was Bielitsa, whether it was Looney, like they switched everyone onto Tatum and were just sort of willing to live with the matchup, trust their help behind that. And the help was like a little bit less aggressive and it came a little bit later. There weren't really any hard doubles. It was more like stunts and backline help than it was sort of like, doubles at the elbow or nail help and the things that were kind of unleashing Tatum's playmaking and Boston's ball movement in game one wasn't there to the same extent in game two. So those are, that's like the biggest 
thing I think that caught my eye was like how it looked in game one, how the Warriors defense adjusted in game two. Um, and we can talk about Draymond's role specifically in that. Yeah. But that's that's where I'm at. And like, I'm just really curious going into game three. Like, do we see any changes or does it look like, we, you know, what we saw in game two? Or is it something in the middle, something in between what we saw in games games one? The Warriors. The Warriors also looked more willing to like vary their defense throughout game two. I mean, you saw some zones, you saw some kind of like something that looked like it was, it was disguised as a zone, but then as the play continued, it became like kind of more of a man to man. There was a little bit of time. It, I, I mean, a little bit like maybe a minute where it was boxing one on Tatum. Like they, they yeah. did do a lot of different things defensively. I thought as opposed to game one, and it, it, I'm not saying in game one, they, you know, gave up on it or it weren't trying different things, but at least like visually aesthetically to me, it wasn't as obvious that they were trying different things as it was in game two. You know, I, they were probably doing some things differently in game one to my eye. I didn't mm-hmm. see it, but the the more interesting thing for me was what you mentioned on the Warriors offensive side. Like my note at the top of my, like through two games notes was all caps Warriors high PNR question mark exclamation mark, because for anyone who's watched the Warriors doing this incredible run, and if you've heard Steve Kerr talk about their offensive process and his offensive philosophy, they almost talk about it in a way where like, in a way, it's almost like they're above that. If you've ever heard Steve Kerr talk about it, like that is not what his, he wants his offense to be like. He doesn't want to just, you know, devolve into high pick and roll all game. Like he has said things like that in the past. Now, obviously, you know, the Warriors have derived plenty of offense from pick and rolls over their run of dominance. You know, like everyone knows about the you know, iconic team blitzes Steph, hands it over to Draymond on a pick and roll or pick and short roll. And then Draymond makes a play for someone else. Like that is obviously a staple or the staple of the Warriors offense, but there's a lot of other things going on. I don't remember a game, to be honest with you, where like the primary source of their offense was just those pick and rolls. It was a little jarring. But it worked. And yeah, as you mentioned, they just spammed it because it was working. And I I would love to have known like what was going through Steve Kerr's mind at that time. Because obviously, given their track record of success and how dynamic their offense has been, I don't at all believe like he was sitting there thinking like, maybe I should have tried this earlier. But I, I would have really loved to have known what was going through his mind, right? Like, is he thinking like, oh my God, this is working beautifully. This is amazing. We're going to tie the series. Or in his head, is he thinking like, oh, I hate that I have to do this, you know, based on the way he's talked about it. So I was kind of just fascinated by watching their offense operate in this, I guess you can say simplistic way, but this simplistic yet effective way that for so long, they kind of carried themselves like they were above. I thought that was really interesting. Um, another thing I wanted to point out too, I talked going into the series and I, you know, I had Jordan Poole as an X factor going into the series, but I, I do think it's kind of playing out that way, but not necessarily for the reasons I believed, or at least wholly for the reasons I believed. Cause if you remember when we first talked about it and when I wrote about it, like I talked about how he was an X factor for me because yeah, offensively, if he wasn't playing at his best or he wasn't on the floor, a, a Warriors offense that can be very high powered can also look very one dimensional and it can be very Steph reliant and it just doesn't look as dynamic. But uh, it was all stemming my picking him as an X factor as like, can the Warriors inflict enough damage on, sorry, can the Celtics inflict enough damage on him and the Warriors on the defensive end to render his minutes less useful or to just diminish his minutes in general, right? If they, if they were punishing him to a point where Steve Kerr's like, man, I got to get Jordan Poole off the court, obviously that would then have a ripple effect on the Warriors offense. Now, they have targeted him on the defensive end. I don't think it's necessarily produced for Boston the way I was concerned it might from the Warriors perspective, but... um. It, I still feel like offensively, he very much has been the X factor because in game one, I didn't think he was very good. And I think there were stretches of that game where the Warriors offense did look very too Steph dependent and not very dynamic. And then I thought game two, when the Warriors really exploded with that onslaught, Poole got hot late in that third quarter. And you kind of saw the full breadth of the Warriors machine offensively. So obviously I know there's a lot more to it than just is Jordan Poole playing well or not, but that's another thing that has stood out to me is there well. that much more to it than that well, maybe, like, well, then, yeah maybe that is it maybe like i guess good for me for picking him as an x-factor like i said it it hasn't necessarily played out on both sides of the ball the way i thought it might and why i picked him as an x-factor but offensively i certainly think it has because yeah when, when jordan Poole is playing up to what we now know his capabilities are based on the season he had 
the Warriors offense is a lot more dynamic, a lot more high powered. There's a lot more to it to solve. And it also helps free up Steph Curry to do his thing. And when Poole's not doing that, you need maybe an outlier game from Clay Thompson, or you need Wiggins to have his best game in the series. And if those guys are just kind of their baseline selves and Poole's not doing what he does, the offense looks a lot less intimidating, man. Yeah, I actually think it's played out you know, I don't think you suggested it would play out one way or another, but I think it has sort of followed the script in terms of, look, the bar for Jordan Poole's offense is extremely high because he's a defensive liability. So there are some players who could get away with putting up an offensive stinker the way that he did in game one. And obviously he's not one of them, right? Like that was a really concerning game from him. And it, I don't think it's a stretch to say that like he cost them that game because he was attackable on defense and the Celtics absolutely did attack him at that end of the floor. And not only was he not contributing on offense, like he was an active detriment with the way that he was playing. Like he was missing shots. First of all, the Celtics, like they adjusted their pick and roll defense against Steph. They kept dropping against pretty much everyone else. Like they kept dropping against Poole and Poole was either missing the shots that that coverage was giving him or wasn't really able to find his way to those shots in the first place because he couldn't create separation from like Peyton Pritchard in a lot of cases. They need they need a ton from him at the offensive end in order to justify playing him big minutes. And I think it was maybe like the, the calculus changed a bit in game two because they actually were able to protect him on defense better than they did in game one. And obviously he played better offensively as well. But I almost thought the big thing was like the Celtics seemed caught off guard a little bit by how willing the Warriors were to switch him onto their mismatch hunting wings. And it was almost like, I don't know, it felt like on a couple of occasions Tatum was like, oh, wait, like you didn't hedge and recover. Like there is no built in passing read here. Now I just have to like make a play one on one. Oh, look, what, what am I supposed to do? Right. And I thought he like, you know, there were points obviously where he scored and where he was able to figure it out. And I don't think that's, you know, moving forward, if the Warriors keep switching, like I have no doubt that Tatum and the Celtics will sort of find and attack that pressure point and figure out what to do with it. But I, I felt like there were points in game two where the machine sort of jammed up because they were they were surprised that the Warriors were actually willing to give that switch. And the same goes for Steph. Like, again, they were just they were switching liberally, like soft switching with guys that you wouldn't typically expect them to switch onto the Celtics' best offensive players. So I thought that was interesting. Um, another point, too, on the Warriors' offense and just, like, how Steph is playing, just to sort of illustrate that, um, Steph usually shoots about the same number of catch-and-shoot threes and pull-up threes. Like, usually more pull-up threes, but not, like, by a considerable amount. Like, regular season, he averaged 6.7 pull-up threes a game compared to five catch and shoot threes and in the playoffs it was 5.6 pull-up threes compared to 4.3 catch and shoots coming into the finals so a little bit more pull-up but closer to even through these two games four total catch and shoot three-point attempts compared to 22 pull-up threes 22 wow. pull-up threes wow. in two games and he's hit 10 of them so it's like you know he's making good on the looks that he is getting and i'm curious is like does Boston look at that and say, no, we do, we want to nudge him toward the pull-ups. We want to take away all the Steph off-ball stuff that can be such a killer for so many defenses. And if we're forcing him into that many pull-ups, we're going to live with it. Or are they like, no, actually, like these pull-ups are killing us and we need to do something about it. Like that's maybe the biggest question I have right now is how does Boston's defense adjust? Even though their game two loss was an offensive loss more than anything, it feels like there are fewer conceivable adjustments for them to make offensively than there are defensive adjustments. Like offensively, I feel like they just need to play better. And like, especially, you know, they, they actually shot well from three in game two. They just could not finish inside the arc. I mean, like they were and smoking. Turned over a lot. They turned it over a ton, which is has become a recurring problem for that yeah. team. But also they were just like, they smoked a ton of layups. Couldn't finish anything from floater range, clanked mid-range jumpers. Like, I, I just, I don't see a ton of process stuff there where I'm like, oh, they can change this. You know, it, it's more just like play better. Whereas defensively, I feel like there's some schematic stuff and maybe some lineup stuff where they can fiddle with things a bit to see if they can land on a better option. 
Um, like that's the, the defensive end is where they have that kind of flexibility. Whereas offensively, I sort of feel like they are what they are. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I feel like Tatum will explode for at least one big game here in Boston. Uh, I know that's easier said than done, but he's been pretty disappointing through the first two games. And, you know, like part of the uh, celebration for Celtics fans after game one was, well, like we stole that game. And we didn't even get a good Tatum game. Like we got the bad shooting Tatum game that, you know, we'll get every few games that you're good for one for a series, but he didn't really have a good game in game two either. So I feel like he's due for had a good first half. He had a good first half. Yes. Um, as the Celtics did in general, I mean, they led for the majority of the first half until they started getting away from them. But um, yeah, so I feel like Tatum will have at least one very great vintage Tatum performance in Boston. This, the Warriors have been, I'd say the better team for, conservatively five, but more realistically, like six of the eight quarters. I think they've been the better team, but Boston did obviously steal one. Has anything in these first two games altered your opinion that it's Warriors and seven as you predicted or that it's going seven? No. Uh, And and to your point about the six of eight quarters, I just have never thought about basketball games that way. Like, I I know it's like a neat, demarcating line and a way to break it down but it's like it is still an arbitrary block of time like 100 you know what i mean so like on balance i come away from this feeling like these two teams are really evenly matched i don't see a ton to separate them i still you know feel that it's splitting hairs and that it's going to come down to like a game seven where the warriors have home court so yeah i'm fine sticking with that prediction but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, do you feel, cause we're always beholden to recency bias to a certain mm-hmm. extent. So do you feel like in that game too, the Warriors came up with any adjustments that the Celtics just don't have good counters for? Like, is well, there I, something I, that the Warriors have like unlocked or stumbled upon or just like a question that they've asked of the Celtics that you feel like Boston just doesn't actually have the answer to. I think that the different defensive looks that the Warriors threw at the Celtics in game two definitely seemed to flummox them. As you mentioned, there were times when even a guy like Tatum ended up kind of getting what he and the team wanted, but maybe didn't get it in the way they predicted they would get. And so it seemed like they were out of sorts and like, didn't know how to react to that. Now you would think that corrects itself and that, the Celtics will find ways to take advantage of that and, and you know, just find counters to what the Warriors are now doing defensively, even if they do vary up the looks. But I will also say, and it's something I talked about coming into the series, and I think you mentioned it as well, We, even though we thought this was going to be very evenly matched, we both said the reason we were ultimately picking Warriors is because we still trusted their offense more than the Celtics' mm-hmm. offense. And Boston's offense, even throughout this playoff run, has had stretches where it's gotten really mucky and like hasn't necessarily looked that inspiring. So percentages wise, I'll say they should figure it out and, you know, drill it down in practice, watch some film, and they, they'll they find a way to get that offense humming even against these different uh, Warriors defensive looks and coverages and zones and a little bit of box and one and whatever. But at the same time, to answer your question, if there is one thing from these first two games that might make me think, okay, here is like, here is the thing that one team has found that will end up being the difference and now it's the Warriors series. From the first two games, I would say it's that. It's it's the way the Celtics offense looked flummoxed and responded, or I guess didn't respond, to the new ways Golden State is now defending. What about you? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I really don't. Like, I think there are a couple things. Like, Gary Payton II being back in the mix, I thought was pretty big. Yep. And him as a you know potential option to be a primary on either Tatum or Brown and how that makes it easier for the Warriors to sort of structural lineups where they have multiple guys on the floor who can guard either of them. And 
Gary Payton II, like Draymond, and you know the the sort of putting Draymond on Jalen Brown, I thought was another pretty crucial adjustment in that game too, where like you can have those guys playing on ball on either Tatum or Brown and trust that they're going to do a pretty excellent job. But you can also really trust those guys to provide excellent help defense. And it's such a tightrope to walk that. Like when you are guarding a primary offensive option, to be able to do that and still be your sort of disruptive self as a helper is very hard to do. And I think those two guys do it as well as almost anybody in the NBA. I did. I, I think there were a couple of times where GP2 got burned for helping a little bit too liberally off of Tatum in the first half of game two, where Tatum got like two or three pretty wide open catch and shoot threes because Gary Payton the second was like helping over aggressively at the nail or just digging down on a drive that he didn't need to. And that can be, again, it's like a tightrope and you have to figure out how to walk it. But like Draymond, especially, I mean him very similarly to how, they put him on Brunson in the Dallas series and he was able to kind of shut off the water of the Mavericks second best offensive player without compromising his ability to be a disruptive helper like that. I, I saw a lot of the same stuff in this game too, where he like him as just like a primary one-on-one defender against Jalen Brown was excellent, but he was still blowing a lot of stuff up with his help rotations and like his ability to help and recover. So he's like forcing kickout passes. And then like, if the kickout pass is going to Jalen Brown or whoever he's guarding, he still manages to be there in plenty of time to deter a shot or disrupt a shot. There was one possession and he actually ended up picking up a foul on this play, but it was still so impressive to me where like Jalen Brown drove and Draymond was basically able to funnel him on the drive, like directly into the help. Kevon Looney was waiting for him at the rim. Then basically Brown made like a lay down pass to Robert Williams in the dunker spot. Draymond makes that quick switch to take away the layup from Robert Williams. Then a kickout pass goes to the top of the floor where Tatum is able to drive an Andrew Wiggins closeout. Boom, like Draymond's back in the lane forcing Tatum to kick it out to the corner and who makes the closeout to the corner it's Draymond and he runs Marcus Smart off the three-point line and then fouls him but it was still like you know four different times basically Draymond managed to blow up that offensive possession it's just like a pretty incredible trump card to have where you know the Celtics have a ton of amazing defenders like they are still to me the best defensive team in this series and by extension in the NBA, like these are the two best defensive teams, but I still think Draymond green is the best defensive player of both of these teams. Just like, you know, Steph Curry is the best offensive player of both of these teams. I mean, maybe that's what it comes down to, right? Like this is the Warriors have the best defensive player and they have the best offensive player. And maybe that's all they need. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that. And yeah, Dr- Draymond's been just absolutely phenomenal, man, especially in game two. And even just, like the beauty of everyone kind of not roasting him, but maybe criticizing him a bit for the comments after game one, where where he basically said like, he liked the way they defended. And it's just like Al Horford and Derek white and Marcus smart, you know, had this many points and this many threes. Like we're confident like that won't happen again. I mean, yeah, everyone's kind of like, Oh, it's disrespectful or whatever. And then game two, that's what happened. The Celtics role players really didn't have, Anything close to the game they had in game one. Obviously, again, it's not that simple. I'm not saying that's the story. That's why they won, didn't win. But both on the court where he's been almost flawless defensively and then off the court where his analysis has been uh, just about flawless. I think Draymond's having a hell of a series. And uh, even even then when you look at the tech and the stuff that went on early in game two, very much through two games, we are getting the full Draymond experience. On the court, defensively especially, off the court, some of the antics on the court, like, everything it's been the full Draymond experience and uh, personally I love to see it and I'm very entertained by it Um, yeah and shout out to Wiggins too who you know obviously the Warriors are switching a ton so the primary matchups don't matter as much but like Wiggins has done a really good job on Tatum and for a lot of the off-ball stuff that the Celtics have tried to run for Tatum like they've tried to like especially in the second half of game two 
I thought there were so many times when they just like tried to run a simple weak side pin down for him and he couldn't get free. Like whether it was because the Warriors were switching it or in a lot of cases because Wiggins was just getting through that screen and getting back on top of Tatum in a hurry. Another adjustment they made was just like they they moved the pickup point on Tatum like way higher up on the floor. Like Wiggins was picking him up in the backcourt, pressuring him for 70, 80, 90 feet on a lot of those possessions. And I thought that made a difference too, kind of getting him out of rhythm, speeding him up a bit. And it was like night and day, his first half and his second half. So huge credit to Wiggins. Pretty rough offensive game for him in game two, but like he did what they needed him to do as far as just being like the first line of defense against Tatum. And I think doing a, a pretty damn good job of it. Yeah. And I think the thing with Andrew Wiggins is like, okay, I know the, the conversations about, about whether he had the deserved all-star spot. Like obviously that was a big part of this season and people kind of using that to almost joke about him not being a real all-star. And then obviously when you look at the contract, you can look at like his on-court value doesn't match that contract and all that is fair. But I think what gets lost sometimes in all of that is like what a luxury it is for the Warriors to have this guy who is able to fit into his role as seamlessly as he is where like, yeah. That's why they call it the luxury tax. (laughs) Oh, great. I love that. Um, But no, but it's true. But like if you, if you watch these couple games or even game two, yeah, to your point, a rough offensive game, but he's become the type of defensive player and especially within the Warriors ecosystem where he doesn't have too much of a burden on the offensive end where like if there's a game where his offense isn't clicking, that's fine because it's the Warriors and he's not one of their, he's not their top or even second option. Sometimes he's not even one of their top three options, but if he can then go out and do a phenomenal job guarding Jason Tatum or mucking up the Celtics offense, he's done his job for that game. And then if there is a game where the Warriors offense needs a lot of help, guess what? Having Andrew Wiggins as your third or fourth option offensively, where in a pinch, you don't want to do it all the time, but in a pinch, he can create his own shot and maybe take advantage of mismatches. But then when he does just have to be the third or fourth option and be a catch and shoot guy, he's become a pretty great shooter. Like the, the different roles he fills for this team and the perfect spot he's found himself in where he doesn't have to fill all those roles usually on the same night. Like it's perfect for player and team. I think it is very much a luxury to have him in the role he's in. And yeah, he, his overall um, abilities and on-court value does not match the contract. And he might not have been a worthy, like deserving all-star and those things are fine, but it is still very much a luxury for them to have him. And if they go on to win the championship, and even if not, just this finals trip that they've gone on, he has played a very, very big part of it because of that. And I think, you know, look, the the Celtics have tried to do the thing where they put Robert Williams on him, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they don't want Robert Williams guarding the opposing team's center because they would rather him not be involved in the central pick and roll action. They'd rather him be guarding a shooter in the corner. So he's there to help on the back line. And I think the wig, the, the warriors and Wiggins have done a good job of taking advantage of that. And yeah, there were a lot of times in that game too, where Wiggins tried and failed to score at the rim because of Robert Williams's presence. But I think they've also done a good job, you know, turning Wiggins into a screener. So they are drawing Rob Williams into that action and running off ball stuff for Wiggins to, you know, catch the ball on the move, like run Robert Williams through some pin down screens. Like I think they're, they're hitting on that pressure point pretty effectively and have given the Celtics something to think about in terms of whether that's actually a matchup they want to stick with. And they actually adjusted the coverage in game one. And then Rob Williams just barely played in game two because he seemed to get re-injured and just doesn't seem to be in a great place physically, which I just want to say the impact that he's still able to have and I know like the, the Warriors have found ways to exploit him in pick and roll, but like the impact that he's still been able to have as a rim protector, despite clearly looking physically compromised, is incredibly impressive to me. And the only time in this series where there's only a one day gap is between game three and four. Apart from that, every game has a two day break after it. So I'm hoping that the the added rest is beneficial for him and that he can give a little bit more than the, you know, 13 minutes that he played in game two. But I think that, you know, the the Warriors have done a good job diminishing his effectiveness, but I still think that he has made his impact felt when he's been out there. I just, I don't know how many minutes he can actually play at this point with what he is dealing with. Also, you 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 mentioned the turn, you mentioned the turnovers too, which, Obviously, the Celtics just need to cut down on their turnovers. I don't know what to say about that apart from just like take better care of the basketball because for the most part, the Warriors have still struggled to score in the half court. 
they've just managed to make hay and transition and they're getting a lot of opportunities to do it because the Celtics have been sloppy with the ball. And the inverse of that is like, you know, I think we expected that the Warriors were going to turn the ball over a lot. Like they're a turnover prone team and the Celtics are a really good team at forcing turnovers. I feel like we probably could have said coming into the series that if the Celtics don't win the turnover battle, they're almost certainly not going to win the series. And they haven't to this point. And, and I think part of that is the fact that the Warriors have run so much of their offense through Curry on the ball and have like done away with a lot of the like Draymond at the top of the floor or orchestrating stuff. Like I feel like that's helped them bring their turnover rate down in these first couple of games. And that's, you know, as much as it's maybe veering away from the Warriors principles and like what has defined their offense for the last few years, it's also helped mitigate some of the downside of playing that style, you know, of like the, all the passing and cutting where you do wind up kicking the ball around a lot. Yep. And then also uh, the Warriors have continued to do what they've done throughout the playoffs, which is really make hay on the offensive glass too. Um, it's come down it came down a bit in game two because game one, they were phenomenal in the offensive glass, but still, you're still looking at uh, over 29% of offensive rebound opportunities yep. landing in the Warriors hands, which if you're the Celtics, if you're losing the turnover battle to the Warriors, and getting crushed on the glass like that, you are in trouble. Shouts to Kevon Looney, man. Yeah. <laughs> that, that dude, just, he's so, great. so good. Yeah. So solid. Yeah. Like, just... No, he's another guy that's just great in his role, and a player that's, like, quietly been getting better. Um, anyway, I think we're all finals out, at least for now, for the first two games. Yeah. We will try to be back later this week and, and talk more finals after, you know, game three. But fan shout-out, quickly, Wanu... Give one to Jason Zhang out in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Goes by at 365Pi on Twitter. I wanted to shout him out. So I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, being at that event, uh, friends of the show, Will Liu and Alex Wong put on at Superfresh in Toronto uh, where the proceeds supported Asian Gold Ribbon. Jason actually stole the show at that event. Uh, he was one of the fans that went up and talked. And anyway, he was anyone who went to that event remembers Jason. He stole the show. But uh, in talking with him on Twitter, Later, he simply replied at one point, uh, pound the rock, baby, which made me realize that he's a pound the rock supporter. So I wanted to give Jason a shout out. Jason, thanks for supporting the show and thanks for providing incredible entertainment that night. Uh, that's super fresh. We have a few more shout outs bank for the next few episodes, but as usual, we want to bank as many as possible and, and be able to shout out as many of our loyal listeners as possible who uh, are what allow us to do what we do. So if you are a listener of Pound the Rock, whether this was your first time listening or your 246th, hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfwand at the score.com. Joseph.cacharo at the score.com. Find me on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, let us know how long you've been listening to the show, what you like about it, what you don't, where you're listening from. And uh, we'll definitely get you a shout out on a future episode like we did Jason today. Until one of those future episodes for Joe Wolfwand. I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.